0: Welcome to the Culture Builders podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance builds strong cultures. Hosted by Jane Sparrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a Deep Dive episode.
1: Hello and welcome to our podcast today where we have the wonderful Peter Davies with us, founder and CEO of Airline Management Group Limited and and Peter has a, a wonderfully glittering career that we'll dive into in a second. We met a while ago, uh, uh, both speaking on the same conference platform and have kept in touch and talked many cultural and leadership uh, themes since. So really, really thrilled that he's made the time to join us today to share some of his experience, some of his lessons learned and perspective on culture from being CEO of many airlines. So Peter, welcome and thank you for joining us.
2: Hello, Jane. Good morning. Good to be here.
1: So I've given a, a very uh, small view of your career history. Just before we get going to, to to dig in and understand more about your perspectives, just give us a sixty second walkthrough of of life as Peter in your career journey.
2: Well, two things I suppose. One is as a young boy, uh, having come from farming stock, uh, I, I learned uh, very quickly how to fix things from my uh, my uh, uh, paternal grandfather. And um, as a result of that, I think he encouraged me, uh, encouraged me during my formative years to be a disruptor. Uh, so I, I say I'm a, I'm a fixed disruptor, uh, and that's probably my background. But as a result of that, it's, it's tended to uh, uh, guide my career into doing things uh, uh, which are exciting, uh, delivering change and uh, understanding, uh, critically from a business point of view, what makes companies tick, but more importantly, what makes the companies tick by way of people. Uh, I come from a customer service background, the airline industry primarily, and of course that deals with uh, with people moving from A to B safely. But essentially we're also a fast moving consumer good. So you need to have the balance between understanding uh, what makes people tick, think and buy from a passenger's perspective, equally important, and we'll come on to this from a staff perspective, uh, and of course, those airlines which are suffering, I enjoy going in and trying to fix them.
1: Yes. And so we'll, we'll understand more about that in a moment. But you talk about people, talk about culture then and in the broader sense and why you think that's so important for organisations to be able to perform and sustainably grow.
2: Well, I think culture, is, it, 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 it's a bedrock, isn't it? It's not, and it's not just from a company's point of view. It's the values uh, you learn as, uh, in your formative years in, in terms of education, in terms of family, in the environment in which you live. Uh, and for me, uh, that creates a culture which allows you to... Uh, it's about being empathetic, about being understanding the other person's point of view, even if you disagree with it. Uh, and create an environment, I always believe the CEO's job and that of any manager or supervisory person is to create the right environment in which other people uh, can work to the best of their ability. And, and that requires vision, it requires an explanation of your own values and how that relates to the product or service that you're selling. So that the staff and the customers have a clear understanding of what it is you stand for as an individual, and I believe what I stand for was talk to me uh, in my formative years, as I said, as a, a young boy, and I've grown up within that environment.
1: So how did you articulate that then, Peter? Because often, as you know, we work with leaders who, who are working through how they show that vulnerability, how they show that humanity around who they are and their own values. How, how did you actually do that practically in your different roles?
2: I, I gave a, a, a chat uh, to 400 PR people uh, last year. And um, uh, one of the questions I had at the end was, "Was what do you do as a CEO of an airline? And I, 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 I sort of cottoned on quite quickly that they were imagining that I was sitting in my office at whichever airport with my sleeves rolled up and uh, countless people around me with great files and computers going through uh, wouldn't you, the, the, the detail of running the airline. And I said, well, actually I'll spend probably 60% of my time on the road, not behind my desk. And they said, but but, what do you do? And I, I said, well, my job is to create the right environment in which other people can work to the best of their ability. So it, it, it's about uh, demonstration. So I physically travel uh, extensively uh, and always on my own airline and, and sampling the different products. Not well, glad I- to hear it. <laughs> Uh, but as a pilot I tend to sit up front front as well which is uh, quite a pleasant office but uh, seriously I, it's a question of, of, of talking to the people you know the people who really know how to do the job uh, in my experience over 40 50 years both in cargo and passenger it, are the people on the ground uh, you know the pilots the engineers the cabin crew the check-in staff the engineers they, they know where Uh, and how to do the job. And when you ask them and talk to them, uh, they actually have a pretty good idea of the processes and procedures, because they obviously manage those processes and procedures, even if they're mandatory, uh, like a sort of safety checklist. But once you start talking to them and say, well, what, what would you do? What's your input? How would you improve this? Or you create teams that allow you to specifically manage that in a more coordinated manner. It's 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 it's, it's it always amazes me uh, to the degree of initiative and passion uh, that the uh, average worker comes back with. Now, the, the the what what the problem is again in my turnaround experience is that. Normally, the C-level managers have moved on in a turnaround situation. they have been fired by the shareholders or investors, uh, leaving uh, the plethora of middle management and supervisory staff. Now, those people are fundamentally important, of course, but they hold the strategic conduit between what the CEO is trying to achieve and the board and the vision and the workforce. and if, And they can strangle that conduit. They can release it. They can be malicious. They can be positive. They can be negative. So my tendency, certainly in turnarounds, uh, is to go straight to the workforce with the union. I have no issue working with the unions. They, they, they do a fantastic job in my experience. And begin to understand what it is that makes that company tick. And there's two aspects, if I may be just a little bit technical from an airline point of view. People say to me, well, what do you do when you first go there? Um, well, uh, the first two things I do is to go to the operational research department. That is where the intellect lies in, in terms of what they think about how their airline performs, where it is relative to other competition and to the marketplace. And secondly, to the what we call the op- operational control centre. Uh, and this is the nerve centre of, uh, of the airline. And if you spend a few hours there, and, and you know, I understand one end of an aeroplane from another, then you get a pretty good idea, solid idea how that organization, how that company, how that airline is flying and, and, and all the uh, incidents that happen and surround it. So you get a pretty good thumbnail view of, of what makes that company tick. And that really then allows you to then start asking what I believe is be is relevant questions. Uh, but people turn around to me and say, oh, you, so you do understand this business there? And they feel comfortable that I'm not trying to trip them up. So it's about demonstrating your your expertise in talking to people and my last point i suppose on that is it's the capability absolute capability of being able to listen and not just hear it's the absolute capability of communicating not just talking
1: Absolutely, and and let me come back to a couple of things you said there, Peter, because I think there's there's lots of golden nuggets in that. One of them being the piece around that that what I call the miracle in the middle. So that that conduit that you talked about, but that can be the miracle, can't they? If they're engaged, if they're included, if their voice is heard, and if they feel like they're that that they're part of the future and the solution. And I'm wondering there when you talked about them and, and going to the workforce, of course, also going with them as part of the war- workforce. What lessons you've learned around how to engage that, that group of people that are so critical, if you get it right?
2: Well, that's a very good point. And, and uh, I, 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 I I will go to the workforce because I found in, in most of my experiences very quickly, uh, the middle management or the supervisory management really begin to understand that you mean business because you're they're with you. You haven't done you haven't done it in secret, obviously. I mean that would be you know, somewhat stupid. But but uh, so they are with you, and you're asking them to make their presentations in terms of and, and you're physically on the line. You're either you know, in the engineering base or you're in the uh, you know, control center or wherever you happen to be asking those questions. Uh, on the ramp uh, with ramp workers loading the luggage, etc. The, you know, the ramp supervisor, the, the ground handling manager, is with you. So, uh, and they're thinking, "Oh my goodness, this has never happened before." And I, I've got lots of examples. And I'll just give you one quickly. One, Air Malta, uh, the uh, the ramp office staff. Uh, yeah, when the aircraft weren't there, uh, we go into their restroom and wait for the next uh, wave, as we call it, the next you know, round planes mm-hmm. to arrive. And um, they were complaining to me. I said, "Oh, is that absolutely awful? Is it like a pigsty?" So I said, well, "I can't believe that." So I went in there. First of all, as the first CEO in seventy-two years, uh, 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 an Emilton CEO, had ever been in their restroom, and it was it was disgusting. And what I tend to do in those situations is to look at the toilets, um, both the male and the female, and and they were just absolutely awful. So fifty thousand euros later. Uh, which wasn't a huge amount of money. Uh, I, I said, look, you've got to promise me that if we spend this sort of money, you're not going to you're not going to make it you know, like a pigsty. You've got to treat it as if it's your own home. Imagine inviting your grandmother. Grandmothers are very important in my uh, <laughs> you know. People Sent a list up and, oh, okay. Because they immediately think of their grandmother. And you make it a family related. So it's yeah. key words <laughs> like that. And they looked at me and they said, yeah, of course, Mr. Davis, not a problem. Sure enough, we spent the money. And uh, and and the place was far better. They 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 now they did they work any harder? I don't think so, because uh, it's pretty tough work anyway. But what they did was appreciate, probably for the first time in a long time, that people had listened to what they said and had done something about it.
0: Peter, I first of all, Jane and I were chuckling away at your toilet story, but partly because. <laughs> one of the things that I always do when I visit a a new organization that we're potentially working with is I visit the toilet because my, my secret trick is I will base my view of an organization on how clean and well looked after their toilets are. And do you know what? I think 99% of the time I'm correct. So what I'm hearing as you're talking, I've been sat here listening, soaking up that you talk a lot about the little detail and, all the things that that make an airline what it is, rather than, you haven't started talking about grand strategy. You've really gone down to the depth and the fact that you're bringing all these myriad of components together. Is that is that usual in your industry? Or are you, you kind of started off by saying you can, that you're a bit of an outlier. Is that more that unusual?
2: Well, I, I can't speak on behalf of other CEOs, but I know other CEOs uh, do not necessarily, necessarily uh, look at the uh, the detail that they leave back to their management teams and, and that's fine. And as I do, obviously you can't run the airline by doing everything, but, but the CEO's job uh, fundamentally is to communicate the vision and, and obviously you've got to create the strategy. Um, and I'm, What I'm talking about are all the soft issues. Clearly, all the hard issues need to be in your brain as well. When I was at DHL, uh, and, and the airline business suffers from this as well to a certain extent. Everyone talks of, of averages, so um, you know the, the average weight per shipment is seven point one three kilos or whatever. I say, well, where did you get the one three from? And they say, well, I said, well, it's one thing divided by another, it's a mathematical consequence. So I say, okay, fine, I understand that. So I, I encouraged many years ago. Uh, I was managing director of a subsidiary company of KLM. Uh, great Dutch airline, and I learnt uh, in my early years a, a lot from them. And one of the things I was taught by uh, by the chairman when I made a presentation was that I was never in those days we had overhead overhead slide projectors, not not the PowerPoint or. <laughs>
1: I'm chuckling because uh, I remember them well too. <laughs> it may it
2: may have even been tissue paper to be honest. It may be that old, but anyway. Um, and uh, he, he asked me uh, on on a country present uh, on a country meeting. Uh, from him. He said, Right, Peter, what I'd like you to do, he did this ahead of his visit. I want you to show me three slides only, and I want you to talk about your strategy and your tactics from those three slides for 20 minutes, and that's it. No other, I don't want any of your accountants there or financial directors, as they were called. And the three slides I had to present were the PL, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. So you have to understand how the company works, and what makes it tick, and, and and what all the cost drivers, what all the revenue drivers. I mean, that that goes without saying. And I employ, you know, significant intelligent. I've always had mathematicians, which is why I said earlier, I always go to the operational research department. That's where the brains sit. That's where the mathematicians sit. They're the ones who are understanding. Uh, where the opportunities are. Now, it's often that people don't listen to them, um, which is a a, a shame and and because they can go off at tangents. But you need, if you control them, that's where the brains are. So you need that anyway, of course. Uh, But then I employ uh, great people who are able to do that. And whenever I've employed C-level people, one of the things I learned many years ago was when you're interviewing, never give anyone the benefit of the doubt. Even if you're hard-pressed to fill a job quickly at a senior level, never give the benefit of the doubt, because inevitably you're wrong, uh, and you find that three, four, five, six months later, and then you've lost six months, another six months, you've lost a year. So it's worth hanging on uh, for uh, a few extra um, weeks or months to find the right person. Does that answer your question, Chris?
0: It does, it does. But of course, as all good answers do, it gives me a thousand more questions, and I'm going to throw something here. I, I guess I know the answer, but I'd love to hear your description of this, that if your mathematicians are the head of your organisation, what's your heart?
2: <laughs> oh, the the heart is, is uh, well, three things. Uh, one is that uh, my heart is always first with the staff. If I do not have a motivated, educated, uh, impassioned staff or passionate staff, then I'm not going to be able to deliver anything uh, to our customers uh, that makes any sense. Secondly, are the customers customers themselves. That's a very close second. And the shareholders and investors a third. Now, when I speak to investors, they get quite worried about that. But if you only ever approach it from an investor's perspective and, and be corralled into, short-term decisions because of of, um, requirements on a quarterly basis, then you tend to um, cut corners when it comes to your staff and your customers. You begin to save money, perhaps unnecessarily so, which has an impact on the quality of the service or how your staff are able to deliver the product. So my heart is is, is, uh, passionate uh, delivering good quality, Services representing the people who work for us and ultimately giving, obviously, satisfaction to our shareholders. The hard side uh, is, as is that OCC or the, um, the uh, operational researcher and all the fundamentals that go through that the IT, CFO I mean, all these are pretty standard stuff. And uh, there's no point discussing that because it's are all fairly obvious. But uh, what I find less obvious uh, is the capability of CEOs just to talk to people.
1: Well, and that is such an important point, isn't it? Because it's such an obvious thing that CEOs need to do is talk to people, but often yeah. gets pushed to the bottom of the list because the, the list is so long. And yet, to your point, if you're going to create a, a high-performing organisation, it's full of people. And therefore, you need to yeah. talk to the people that know the answers to the problems that that you've got.
0: Absolutely. I love the fact, though, that you bring in investors and shareholders and the number of times organisations see them as the enemy. and <laughs> I And my... Comment always is the same thing. They're not your enemy. They are your owners. You know, yeah, they absolutely. have put money. They own your company. They own your organization. So you have to have a different relationship with them. But it's warming to hear you put them in the into that trio of where your heart is. So thank you. Well, they
2: they've uh, they they know what they're trying to achieve, and and uh, normally they have a a, you know, a financial valuation in terms of their uh, uh, their returns. But uh, it's up to the CEO and and his or her team to uh, to translate that into a, a product which is understandable understood by the staff in terms of the values and, and what we need to do F- fly people safely obviously but all the other attributes that make the difference between my product and your product uh, and, and it's not rocket science but it's amazing in my experiences when I when I've looked at turnarounds the the theme uh, that I find is consistent demotivated workforce uh, Probably they're on their fifth business plan generated by some very expensive consultancy, uh, costing four million dollars, but never been implemented. and one of the worst things about um, uh, being a CEO, if you're not careful, is planning to plan. I mean, you, 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 everyone can do that. It's fantastic. Um, no responsibility, no accountability. Just tinkering away, making sure that one day uh, the car looks brilliant to take out or the aeroplane looks brilliant to fly. I mean, life's not like that. Yeah, and.
0: You talk about turnarounds there, and you we, said some already. But I'm really fascinated when you step into those organizations that are on their knees. What is the one thing that you always do that starts that journey back up to where you want them to be?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, apart from the things I've mentioned in terms of understanding the staff and the customers and and the shareholders and, and getting a feel of where how the that airline works with all its processes and procedures, and I often uh, before I join the airline, we'll, we'll jump on one of their aircraft, book the ticket as a, as a normal passenger, so you get a pretty good idea because you're obviously incognito at that point. No one knows who you are. But in all my turnarounds, there's been one constant, uh, and that is that the management team, uh, when you confront them, and it is a question of, in that sense of confrontation, uh, although you're trying to understand the facts uh, of how they got in that position, it's never their fault. It's, <laughs> always, it's always someone else's fault. It's either the competition or the shareholders or the board or the previous CEO or the unions or the workforce. It's always someone else's fault. And What I found is that uh, management teams tend to, when they haven't got the solution or they haven't got the energy to find a solution, they will bury their head in the sand and then add cement. and, and it's quite shocking, and, and that's consistent. That is, con- anywhere in the world I've worked, and I've worked on all the continents, and I've managed 158 countries. I think I've traveled about 182, um, and, and regardless of culture, creed, religion, or color. That's always been a, a constant. And therefore, my job is to prize that open, is to, I, can I just give you one example? Mm. When I was CEO at SN Brussels, the successor to Sabina, which went bust in 2001, many of the staff had said that it was the fault of Ryanair. Ryanair, at that stage, were operating through Charleroi with two or three aeroplanes, 80 kilometres south of uh, Brussels. And, and this was a fundamental problem. This was really inherent in, the, in their psyche. It was someone else's fault. Uh, they had made a profit in in what 40 odd years. I commissioned some research because I felt that was fundamentally wrong of course I always blame the competition and um, a short to cut a long story short the research indicated that 76 percent of the people traveling at Ryanair in 2001 had never flown before. So my view and, and there was a lot more sophistication to it than that but the result was listen. Ryanair right now, offering tickets for 10 euros, 20 euros, 30 euros, whatever it happens to be, uh, on a clever revenue management system. But they are increasing the size of the market. These people have never flown before, so therefore we should take an opportunity of that. So don't knock them, and uh, let's take advantage of it. And then that people began to understand uh, the logic of that and the common sense of that. one has to be pragmatic and say, okay, so yeah, what are we going to do about it? Uh, and, and, and that, that was, uh, that was a, a, a significant moment in terms of changing collectively the management team. And I think you have to find those anecdotes or examples. You have to prove as a CEO that uh, it's not that they're wrong or that you're right, but there has to be a different perspective. And I always remember Bertrand's Ruttle, Bertrand Russell's famous quote, you know, conventional people are roused to fury by departure. From convention, largely because they see such departures as a criticism of themselves, and that's a fundamental flaw in in management's thinking when it comes to uh, creating the change environment.
0: I love that quote, and I love the fact that you can remember it so well. I struggle on that, and but that, the whole thing about com- the competition and blaming the competition—it's a great point, and it reminds me of we we've worked for many years with people that have have been in the the WestJet culture, yeah, and loads of stories come out of that, but one of them that always fascinates me is in the office they have the wall of failure, which is all the planes and all the um, airlines that have gone bust since WestJet was founded. They're not gloating, quite the opposite. It's a cautionary tale of just how close failure is for anyone in the airline industry. It's a tough area, isn't it?
2: Uh, It's a tough business, but you, you raise a fascinating point. I remember in 1976 I was visiting Tokyo and i was visiting a uh, distribution company called sagawa and i went into they had 26 depots throughout the whole of uh, of japan i was in their large tokyo one and they were uh, you know significant union uh, uh, employees and there was this huge great uh, chart up on the wall i mean it was like 4 meters by 5 meters and all the names of the couriers were on the left hand side and, and and their workload how many packages they delivered over a five-week period and the bottom and there was about 200 of them and the bottom 10 were were red and i i asked the guy I, obviously it's all in japanese i said why why, why they've been differentiated he said well that's interesting mr davis that was put there by the union and it says um uh, to these 10 people do you think you should really be working for the company wow <laughs> I mean, it is, absolutely i mean wow and that wasn't put there by management. I I, 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 well, I couldn't see management being allowed to do that. The unions themselves wanted to, and this is you know, why I've worked closely with the unions, because I think once you start talking to them and don't treat them as adversarial, of course it's adversarial, uh, but don't treat them uh, from day one. I've had many discussions with many unions around the world and they're all great fun. So a lot of
0: companies forget what unions are there to do. They are fundamentally there to look after the workers, aren't they? And
2: As it's management's job is to look after the So there's a point
0: of similarity that we forget.
2: Yeah, but I think it's also important to point out to the unions that they have equal responsibility. I mean, management's responsible for the workforce. It's also responsible to the shareholders for its return on capital, or whatever the criteria happens to be. But equally, I've pointed out to unions, I said, well, you're responsible uh, for the welfare of your staff, but also you're responsible for the welfare of the company, and that includes the shareholders. So therefore, you know, try and come to a, a, a common ground where you, you may be you know, miles apart, and often are, but the principle of having a discussion and, and, and talking things through uh, and trying to get them to see logic is, uh, is um, a fascinating, uh, you know, for me, a fascinating uh, part of my job. And uh, of course, that when it, that's when it comes down to you know, communicating, not just uh, talking.
1: Completely. And of course, that in itself could could be a whole podcast. But but let, let's finish off <laughs> with just looking at the the whole industry, of course, the whole world is, is uncertain right now. And there's mm. a lot of complexity, there's a, a lot of need to be agile and, and think differently. What, what do you feel for leaders going into 2021 in particular they need to be mindful of, particularly around this whole sort of cultural area so that they can lead businesses successfully? Because there's a lot of challenge right now, isn't there? And leaders yeah. are under a lot of pressure. What would your advice be to those leading large organizations right now?
2: Well clearly the short term liquidity is something that's uh, top of mind and they've been uh, working through that for the last uh, 6 months and that will continue or 9 months I should say now and that will continue. Uh, The issue I suppose is that uh, managing the short term liquidity has that uh, mortgage the future in terms of their borrowings, how has that affected their balance sheet and and how will that affect their cash flow statement. So there's a, a clear significant financial consequence. Uh, to every single company and, and the airline business is, uh, is no different to that. Um, clearly, there, there's going to be a reduction in staff. There's going to be a, people, inverted commas, they call it the new normal. Um, I know, I do. What I do know is, is from the airline point of view, uh, we anticipate there's no crystal ball, but you can second guess quite accurately that the number of uh, aircraft uh, that won't be flying around <coughs> will be 30% of what it was a, a, a year ago. Uh, On average, there's 10,000 aircraft in the sky, so that's 3,000 less aircraft every day uh, flying around because of the consequences of that in terms of of employment. But uh, you have a responsibility, don't you, to to manage what you can manage. And uh, you have to understand that uh, the environment, the envelope, the parameters in which you provided services in the marketplace is changed, so you need to intellectually understand what the consequences of uh, will be. I think it's important. Well, I had this conversation the other day. Um, you know, people saying, well, "What could the model be?" And, and all sorts of ideas. I said, "Well, what? What should the model be? What actually? What should it be?" we got a pretty good idea, intelligently, what what the marketplace is going to look like. Uh, we know the vaccine will have a big improvement. People will start flying again, etc., etc. Um, so uh, our my colleagues here uh, are working on, on a, a range of different models. So that once you've understood how you can operate with that, you can then explain that to, to the staff. That's going to be tough because uh, some are going to lose their jobs. And certainly I've closed airlines uh, and had to maintain positive views with the staff whilst we're in the process of closing it. So I don't underestimate that task, but it comes back to what I said earlier, and that's communication. You've got to look them in the eye. You've got to be upfront and you gotta tell them the truth.
1: Yeah, and that's a great way to end because that is where it all comes down to, in my view. It's telling telling the truth wherever you can. Uh, it's communicating, and it's ultimately showing people that you value them, isn't it? That they are valued, and that yes. you respect them as a human being. And and then even if it's a difficult message or a great message, people will will much more likely come with you on the journey. So, and and what a journey we've had, Peter, today. And and thank you so much for joining. Well, us. It. So much more we could talk about. And maybe we'll do that again next time. But for now, thank you. for joining us and and good luck over the next few months
0: indeed thank you very much thank you thank you
2: chris
1: thank you for listening continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com